So good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Arbor Church. If, you, if we haven't met before, my name's Garrett, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and so glad you're here. I think you picked a great weekend to be here, not only because I'm speaking, but I just think it's a great week. And we've been in a series over the last several weeks called Miracles, and uh, we're wrapping that up today uh, in week five. And as Jake and I were planning the series and talking about how we wanted to close it out, we thought something we really wanted to do, in addition to focusing on the Bible and the stories uh, we read there of Jesus, the man behind the miracles, and all of the incredible stuff that happened there, is not just talk about what happened 2,000 years ago, but what's happening right now, currently. How are we seeing the hand of God move and the miraculous move in today and amongst our own family. And so last week, Jake invited Paula to come up and share. And if you were here, she shared about um, a miracle that she witnessed firsthand on a missions trip to Mexico. And today, I'm going to invite some friends of mine, Jen and Tony Miller, up to share a story of how, in the last couple of years, God moved miraculously in their lives and spared their lives, saved them and their family and, uh, and another family that they're with from what could have been incredibly, incredibly tragic. So, Jen and Tony, you guys want to come up? Will you help me welcome Jen and Tony? Hi, I'm Jen. This is Tony. Um, I'm going to attempt to tell you a story that I've done uh, in no less than one hour in the past, so hopefully I can condense it down for you a little bit today. But about two years ago, we were on the Columbia River with our friends. Uh, we had our, at the time, four-year-old twins with us, and they had their four-year-old and two-year-old daughters with them. We were in a lovely Mastercraft ski boat, and we had been out wakeboarding and water skiing. The water was glass. It was a beautiful day, not a bit of wind in the air. Um, and we had noticed as we were skiing that there were some fires coming over the hillside. You might remember about two years ago in August, Chelan almost burnt to the ground. <laughs> um, and so we started to also notice there were helicopters dipping into the water. They're big buckets, and they were taking the water out to put the fires out. And all of a sudden, the wind started to pick up, so we thought we should probably head back. We were about 20 minutes from our campground. And we were hugging the shore pretty tightly because it was getting a little choppy, but none of the, light, none of the adults had their life jackets on because it wasn't anything that we were super concerned about at the time. Uh, the kids, thankfully, all did. My daughter had just started to fall asleep in my lap, and I remember hearing Tony say, if we nose in, kill the engine. And I just remember thinking, that just seems like a strange thing to say on a perfectly beautiful day. And next thing I know, I'm in the Mastercraft up to my waist in water, and in another two seconds, another wave hit us, and I'm now being washed out of the Mastercraft. A third wave hit us, and the boat was gone. Um, as I got washed out of the boat, Tony handed me a big uh, bumper, uh, boat bumper, and I had my daughter on my hip, and from that moment on, I didn't know where anyone else was. I didn't know where my family was. I didn't know where our friends were. I didn't know where the boat was. It was just me and my daughter in the water clinging to this buoy. Um, it was, it's hard to explain the conditions of the water at the time. It was so loud. The wind, they estimate, was coming up the channel at about 50 miles an hour. Um, the waves, I don't know how big they were, but the tops of them were white caps, and they were being blown off into our face. So we were above water but practically drowning because the waves were just being blown into our faces. You couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see anything. You couldn't hear anything. I was trying to get to shore, which later I've been told was pretty much an impossible feat, but at the time I thought that's what I was going to do. And... <laughs> 
in a moment, everything kind of quieted, and I look over, and I see Tony, and I hear him yell, get here now, and he's out in the middle of the river, and I remember thinking, that just seems like the wrong direction to go, but I did, and I always tell people I wish I could take credit for being some Michael Phelps-like swimmer, doing an amazing job getting out there, but it was really impossible for me to swim with any accuracy with a giant buoy under one arm and my daughter on my other hip, no life jacket. Um, I get to Tony, I realize that he's drowning, and he has my son and our friend's daughter, who's also four, and he has no life jacket. The five of us cling to that buoy for probably, I mean, it's hard to say how long witnesses think we were in the water for probably close to 25 minutes before we were rescued. Um, finally, a ski boat and a sea come out, and they pick up me, and my, the sea picks up me and my daughter, and the ski boat picks up Tony and our son and our friend's daughter and our friend and her daughter, and take us back to shore. Um, Tony, he, I remember him saying he was pretty certain that our friend Matt was gone at that point because nobody had heard from him, seen him. And when we got back to shore, he was there. On shore, there was probably close to 50 people. It was a campground. There was a lot of people there um, that all witnessed our rescue. Um, there were some pictures of our rescue. You see the ski boat. You see the sea dew. And Matt is there, and he says that he was rescued by an aluminum fishing boat with two fishermen on it. And nobody saw them. Not one of those 50 people on the shore that were rescuing us, that were watching people come in at the dock, ever saw that boat. Um, then we get to shore. There's an ambulance there. Ambulance assesses the children. They are all hypothermic. Their lips are blue. They're shivering. So cold, the ambulance decides they need to take us into Chelan, um, which is on fire at this time. And as we're driving back up into the city of Chelan, I remember looking at the tires of the ambulance and just seeing embers just flying up off of the tires. And I'm thinking, are these tires going to melt? I mean, are we even going to make it? And Tony said he looked across the river and he actually saw the fire jump the Columbia River. Our buddy Matt was looking the other direction and he saw trucks burning and houses burning. And we just thought, okay, Lord, like if this is the way we're supposed to go, if today's the day, put me back in that river because burning does not sound like a good plan. And so in that ambulance, we would go from like, it was like 85 degrees out that day, and we would drive through flames, literally, and that ambulance would heat up to like, I mean, I don't know, 180 degrees. It was so hot. It was like we were in a little microwave box just heating up. We finally get to the hospital that is out of power, has no running water, and they basically shut down the emergency room at that point. I remember right behind us, a firefighter on a stretcher is being rolled in with his boots melted to his feet. And here we are in our bathing suits <laughs> with uh, no shoes on in the emergency room. And the uh, staff decided to assess the children and at that point had uh, come to the conclusion that everybody was totally fine. The kids who were hypothermic when we left were no longer hypothermic. I don't know if God's uh, amazing plan was to drive us through some burning hills to heat up the children, but whatever happened, they were fine. Um, so to kind of wrap up this really long story, there were just some awesome things that happened to us that day. One, um, the fact that Matt was rescued and nobody can account for that boat, those fishermen. We think it's very interesting that two guys would pick up a guy and bring him back to shore. One, go back out into that water, which was nobody is boating in that water. Nobody voluntarily like heads back out at that time. And two, didn't stick around to see if anybody else was okay. It was just interesting that they just disappeared. We've been in contact with the people that rescued us multiple times since, and nobody has any idea who those fishermen were. Um, the other really kind of amazing thing was that our friend Chelsea, who was in the water with her two-year-old Sadie, I mean, we were all screaming out to God, praying that he would save us, and it was a very obviously highly stressful time. 
And Sadie talks still to this day about how there was a happy man in the water with her. Um, I can guarantee you that no man in that water that day was happy. <laughs> and she wasn't even, I mean, she was just with her mom. She wasn't with Tony. She wasn't with Matt. She was with nobody else. But there was a happy man there that comforted her. And then um, just the other thing, the, the fact that I was able to get to Tony with that buoy, um, neither of us remember the process of that. I don't remember specifically trying to swim towards him. He doesn't remember seeing me coming towards him. I just believe that an angel picked me up by the shoulders and placed me right there. So... It's, it was an interesting day, and I'm just thankful to be able to be here sharing the story because I feel like we went through it for a reason, and hopefully it's to be able to share these miracles with you all. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Jen. I've gotten to know the Millers for several years, and um, when I heard that story, I was just blown away, and I was hanging out with them Thursday night, um, with our, they're, they're also my group leaders, so that's pretty cool. And uh, our group got together Thursday night and watched the Seahawks game together and was talking to them again about the story and, and preparing to come up and share this morning. And I was like, man, I should just bail on my message and let you guys share. It is so incredible, detail after detail after detail, to watch God's hands move in your guys' life and to think that God was going to save them from drowning in a river to get in an ambulance. Can you imagine if you put yourself in that spot, you finally get in an ambulance and you're breathing a sigh of relief, like, thank you, Jesus, that we made it, only to go into flames jumping the road in the inside of an ambulance heating up to 200 degrees and going, oh, so now we're going to burn to death? I mean, it's just wild. But God is good. And it, I, I hope you're encouraged hearing these stories because it's not just stories that we tell that happened 2,000 years ago, but God's still alive and well, and the healing hand of Jesus is still active. And he, he cares about us in a very personal way. And uh, when we started this series off, Jake said something that's kind of been a, a theme or, or, or a saying that we've said each week. That when it comes to miracles, faith almost always precedes a miracle. We've been talking a lot about this idea of faith. Faith almost always precedes a miracle. And we know this idea of a right order, right? Um, calm comes before the storm horse goes before the cart, pride comes before the fall, right? We know these things. In my life, it's the surprise third baby comes right before the appointment with Dr. Snip. <laughs> like right before. The, <laughs> uh, but we're so happy. <laughs> Tawny's doing two and a half weeks. Isn't that crazy? We're going to have a, a little guy run around two and a half weeks, so I'm sleeping as much as I can now. And uh, in a couple weeks, I'm gonna, my face is going to look real puffy. So, so today, the question that we want uh, to ask as we go through our time today is, when it comes to miracle, what role does our faith play? Another way to say it is, what does our faith do? When it comes to miracles, what does our faith do? And to help us guide us through this conversation, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Matthew known as the faith of a centurion. Uh, another way it's titled in the Bible is a faith of a Roman officer. It's found in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. So if you brought your Bibles and want to turn there, go ahead. It'll be up on the screens as well um, that you can follow along. But um, just a quick note on this passage before we read it. 
There's two different places that this story about the faith of the centurion appears. One is in this scripture we're going to read in Matthew chapter 8. Another one is in Luke chapter 7. And at first glance, there can seem like there's a discrepancy between the two. But here's the deal. We know that Dr. Luke tends to write in greater detail. He's a doctor. He likes science. He takes great pride in being very specific about the things he's writing about. Matthew, as a general rule, is more of a summarize and get to the point type of guy. Kind of like in my marriage. One of us gets right to the point. The other one goes on and on with details and emotions. And that person is me. Uh, you were like, God, this is rude. I can't believe you're saying that about Tawny. I'm the emotional one in the relationship. So to spare us all from that, we're going to focus on Matthew for time's sake. We're just going to go through his more uh, summarized version of the story. Sound good? So to help us out, I've asked our buddy Chris Fenner to come up and read for us. You want to grab that microphone, Chris? Um, or you can talk right into my cheek if that's better. <laughs> Why don't you do this? Okay. Matthew 8. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go. Or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home. Because you believed, it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. So I want to go through and break this down verse by verse, because there's a lot going on in a in a short amount of scripture here. And hang in there with me, okay? Because I think sometimes we read these and we read them as stories, as old stories, and sometimes we miss out on really cool stuff in, in uh, some of the details in the midst of it. And so here's what I hope. There's notes um, on your chairs in front of you and pens. Take some notes. Lean into the story and try and immerse yourself in it. Try and find a place where you can kind of relate to not this being some ancient Egypt, you know, Israel thing 2,000 years ago, but let's try and put ourselves in the context of it right now. So the context of this is it starts off with saying Jesus is on his way back to. He's returning to Capernaum. So where is he returning from? He's on one of his missionary journeys. He's doing his ministry. A lot of it is centered around the Sea of Galilee in many of these little cities in the area. And so as he's returning to Galilee, he's coming through a town called Cana. And some of you might remember this town, Cana. This is where Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding feast. He turned water into wine at Cana. So there's some significance around this. And Cana is just about a few miles west of Capernaum where he was headed. And 
there was another Roman officer, not the centurion we're talking about, but one of his co-workers, who had heard about Jesus, that he was doing all of these healings, and this Roman officer had a sick son. And so he bolted over to Cana, hearing Jesus was on his way back, and he met Jesus in Cana and said, my son is sick, will you heal him? Short version of the story, Jesus healed his son. So as you can imagine, word traveled really quick. Like the distance is probably the distance between Bellevue and Kirkland. So let's say Jesus was in Renton because there's a bunch of people at Boeing that he was talking to there. Thought he'd hit VMAC real quick and catch a practice. Cruises up to Bellevue and this government official that lives in Kirkland went to Bellevue. Said, hey, my son's sick. Jesus heals his son. Word would get to, to Kirkland real, real fast, wouldn't it? And not only geographically was it close, but this guy was co-workers with the Roman centurion we're talking about this morning. So we don't know if they personally knew each other, but at the least you could imagine that word went through the grapevine, the water cooler talk at work, and that our centurion had heard, holy cow, my co-worker's son was just healed by this guy Jesus, and now he's here in Capernaum. So let's talk about Capernaum. It was a prosperous fishing town. I think Jesus is a pretty strategic dude. Most of his ministry was based out of Capernaum. That was kind of his home base. Prosperous fishing town, and it was uh, central in a major intersection of what was known as the Great Trunk Road. It was a, a major thoroughfare for trading. So anyone that was traveling between Egypt and Mesopotamia had to go through Capernaum. So super international community, a lot of diversity, a lot of people coming in and out, a lot of commerce, just a lot of buzz in this place. So really, if, again, if we kind of immerse ourselves in the story, it's not a whole lot different than where we find ourselves living right now, going up and down the 405 corridor between these places that he's really strategically placed. And then we've got this centurion, right? When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman official, a centurion came to him and pleaded. A centurion oversaw a hundred soldiers in the Roman military, a century of soldiers. So that's where the term or the name centurion comes from. If you think about that for a minute, that's a lot of people to oversee. My last job I oversaw 30, 35 people, and I thought, holy cow, that's a lot of people. This guy oversaw three times that amount of people. We also know that he was friendly to the Jews, which is a big deal because back in that day, the Jews weren't super fond of the Roman occupation of their land, right? They didn't invite them in and say, hey, why don't you guys take over and rule over us? They didn't love the Romans. But this guy didn't wield his authority over them in a coercive way. He was friendly to them. In fact, Scripture tells us that he helped build the Jewish synagogue, and it even says that he's a God-fearer, which is their term back then for a worshiper of God. We don't believe that he actually converted to Judaism. There's no record of that. He didn't get circumcised that we know of. Probably would have made a big deal about it if he had. But he, we at least know that he was kind and friendly to the Jews and that he worshiped God. So now let's go into verses six through nine. So we've got this Roman officer that comes and pleaded with Jesus and he says, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under 
the authority of my superior officer, and I have authority over my soldiers. I say go, and they go. I say come, and they come. Right? Chris just read this to us. This is a guy that understands the chain of command, as most anyone who's been in the military would understand. My home, we definitely understand the chain of command by this one phrase. Go talk to your mother. My kids know very well who's in charge around home. Dad doles out hugs. Okay. So, no, Tani is very nice too. But this guy understood the chain of command. And here's the thing. The very first word he uses to address Jesus is what? Lord. He comes to him and says, Lord. Think about that. He immediately is placing Jesus higher than any other position, than a four-star general in the army. Whatever the highest position in the Roman army, uh, in the Roman military was, he is saying, you, Jesus, are higher than all of that by addressing him as Lord. It's a big deal. Didn't call him rabbi, didn't call him teacher, didn't call him great man. He said, Lord. I think that's interesting. And he was respectful to Jewish customs because he was a friend of the Jews. He lived in their culture. He knew that Jewish law stated that if a Jew entered the home of a Gentile, they would become ceremonially unclean. And so he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you enter my home. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So it's not disrespectful that, you know, like if Jesus, if I met Jesus and he said, let's go to your house, I'll heal your daughter. I'd be like, let's go, let's do it, come on, come with me. But this guy says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to have you there. And it was a deeply respectful thing that he did. And what's Jesus' response to this? As we look to verse 10, Jesus responded and marveled. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed, turning to those who had followed him and said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith as great as this in all of Israel. This is a big deal. There's only two times in all of scripture that it says Jesus was amazed or he marveled at someone's faith. The first time is in Mark chapter 6, and this is a story when Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown where he was born. And it's where we get the phrase, a prophet has no place in his hometown. If you remember that story, Jesus goes back to his hometown and it says that Jesus was amazed by their unbelief. In fact, their unbelief was so strong, so faith, so lacking that it actually hindered him from performing really any miracles while he was there. And I think to note the word is really important, the word unbelief, because there is a distinction in scripture between unbelief and lack of faith. When unbelief is used, and it's not used much, it notates uh, a repeated, ongoing, habitual lack of faith, an absence of faith, really. When lack of faith is used, it's usually more circumstantial or specific to that moment. So this, Jesus is marveling in Mark 6, going, these people, they just, they have no faith. And my, I, I can't perform any miracles here. So then to Matthew 8, where we're at now, it's the opposite. It's the only time in all of scripture that God marvels and said, this guy's faith is unbelievable. I haven't seen faith this great in all of Israel. And it's a big deal to, to see that and to notice that this guy, the centurion, a Gentile, in all of scripture is the only person Jesus says, I've never seen a faith as great as this. So how else does Jesus respond? Looking at verse 11 and 12, um, two things I want to point out here. One, faith can come from anyone. 
As we go into verse 11, it says, I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world. As far as the east from the west, they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. But then he says a really pointed statement. You, Jews, you Israelites, in which the feast was created for, will miss out on it. So faith can come from anyone. You don't have to have the right pedigree. Don't have to be a certain race. Don't have to, right? This guy was not born with the silver spoon of the chosen one in his mouth. The culture in which he lived in, those were the people of God. He was a Jew, or a Gentile. Remember, the Jews came in his house, they'd be ceremonially unclean. And yet, Jesus says, this guy and the people like him are the ones that are gonna be with me for eternity. And the second one I wanna point out is faith doesn't have a formula. And if I can just kind of get off my notes and sit on this one for a second, because this, I think this is a big deal for those of us sitting in a church, especially if, if uh, like if you're here and you don't have a church background, you're kind of new to this thing or you're kicking the tires of faith in Christianity, it's probably good news for you, right? Because this Gentile was that guy and Jesus is praising him. Those of us that have a church background and have been doing this thing for a while, maybe we should take notice here and lean in for a second because Jesus is saying those of us that know all the stuff and do all the right things, and we go to church, and we go to group, and we pray, and we read our Bible, and we do all that, could ultimately end up missing the point. And the point is not that faith is an equation. It's not a formula. This isn't a magic book of spells, you know, like if we memorize the right chant that will unlock miracles to us through this but I think unintentionally sometimes that's what we end up doing we and and it's my concern and even sharing this this morning that we'll come and we'll hear this and then we'll okay so have faith like the centurion and so we'll do a little bit better and we'll try a little bit harder and well is that working or is that not working but all of this stuff all of this stuff in this book all the stuff that God reveals to us is not about getting us to a specific process, but getting us to a specific person. And the person is Jesus. Everything we do is not just to do the right stuff, but it's ultimately to point us to the person of Jesus. And when Jesus was standing right in front of the people that had all of the information, all of the teachings, all of the traditions that ultimately were pointing to him, they missed it. But the centurion didn't. He saw him and he recognized him and he said, Lord, it's incredible. And it made all of the difference for him. Made all the difference. And because of it, his servant experienced something incredibly powerful. Because of it, his servant was healed. His life was transformed. And so here we have Jesus saying, I haven't seen greater faith than this in all of Israel. So there's that word again, faith. And we'll go back to that question that I said when I started. When it comes to miracles, what role does our faith play? What does faith do? So we've kind of extrapolated this. We've talked about the context. We've broken it down verse by verse and seen what's going on. So I want to just point out two major points that I see in the overall context in this story of the faith of the centurions. The first one is our faith can influence God. Our faith can influence God. And I want to be really clear. I believe, we at Arbor Church, we believe God's omnipotent. 
He's all powerful. So I'm not saying that we can change God's mind. Otherwise, we would be God and he wouldn't. But when I look at this passage, I'm amazed when I see Jesus says, I will come heal your servant. And this guy says, no, 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 don't do that. I'm not worthy. I understand authority. You can say it right here and it'll happen. You don't need to come to my house. And Jesus says, okay. He had a plan to go to his house, but this guy influenced Jesus and Jesus said, okay. And not only okay, but man, I haven't seen greater faith in all of Israel. And just bear with me for a second because I'm sure this uh, analogy breaks down in a lot of ways. But my daughter um, is in gymnastics. She goes three times a week. Each time she goes, it's four hours. She goes from 4.15 to 8.15 at night. That's a long time. And by the time she's done, I pick her up. We get out of there about 8.30. And I'm thinking, we got to get home. We got to do homework. We got to get you fed. We got to get you to bed. That's a lot to do in a short period of time. But without fail, my daughter, Esme, she's 10 years old, says every time Tawny or I pick her up from gymnastics, can we go to Menchie's? Can we go to Menchie's? Can we go to Menchie's? That place is a freaking money trap. You know that? (laughs) Holy cow. I got to buy stock in Menchie's. And more often than not, the answer is no, sweetheart. We're not going to go to Menchie's. I don't want you to load you with sugar. You haven't had dinner yet. It's late, right? All the lame parent excuses for I can't afford to take you to Menchie's. But every once in a while, as I'm driving there, I'm thinking, I know Esme's going to ask me this, and if she asks me tonight, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to just change my plans a little bit and do that. Now, it's not some cosmic joke. If she doesn't ask, which is rare, then I won't go there. I'll go straight home. But if she asks, I alter my course. I stop at Menchie's. Ultimately, we go home, right? We were always going to go home. We were always going to do homework. We were always going to eat dinner. But every once in a while, she, when she looks in my eyes and asks me that question, and there's relationship there, she, she influences me. Does that make sense? And there's scriptural precedence, a lot of it, for this happening in a spiritual way between us and God. Prayer, in and of itself, if you just look at prayer, the Bible instructs us over and over and over to pray, and that our prayer of faith will move God, will influence God. Um, James 1, a pray, pray in faith, otherwise you won't receive what you ask for. Then again, James 5, it says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We think of Abraham, how he pleaded with God for Sodom. If some of you remember that story, God's, uh, Abraham says, please don't destroy Sodom. If you find just 50 righteous people, God says, okay, if I find 50, can I be so bold as to say 40? How about 35? How about 30? Do you remember this story? He counts all the way down to 10. And God engages with him in that. He influences God. Moses, all throughout scripture, Moses is standing in the gap for the Israelites. Look, I know they're doing stupid stuff and I know they keep turning their back on you, God, but don't carry out your vengeance on them. Don't carry out your anger on them. What would have happened if Moses hadn't have done that? if he hadn't prayed, if he hadn't stood in the gap for them. And so we don't change God's mind, and there's great debate over this, so I'm not gonna get, I mean, that's like this gigantic theological bait around can you change God's mind. But I think what is really clear is that we can influence the method in which God works and carries out his ultimate plan. The other point is this. Our faith impacts others. 
and we see this a lot throughout scripture as well. This centurion, his faith had an incredible impact on his slave, on his servant, which is crazy. And did you catch it? The very same hour that he asked Jesus, his servant was healed immediately. By the time he got home, he was already healed and they said he was healed at this hour and the centurion went, holy cow, that was exactly when I was talking to Jesus. Had a huge impact on the life of his servant. And again, we see a lot of examples throughout scripture of how other people's faith impact the lives of other people. Think of the paralytic. Do you remember this story where there was the guy laying on a mat and his buddies carry him through a crowd to a house Jesus was speaking at? And it says the house was so packed they couldn't get in. So they climbed up on a roof. I mean, this story is crazy when you picture it. Like how you get a paralyzed guy on a mat up onto a roof. And then they cut a hole in the roof and lowered the guy down. And Jesus says, your friend's faith is so incredible. Your sins are forgiven you. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Um, we talked about it before, the, the centurion's co-worker, the government, government official's son, um, where his faith for his son, and his son was healed. And a Gentile woman who goes to Jesus and asks him to heal her daughter. And after a lot of deliberation, Jesus finally says, your faith is great, your daughter is healed. It's incredible how our prayers can influence God and have a gigantic impact on the lives of other people. As I close up, I wanted to share a story with you of something that happened in my life. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do math. It's probably about 20 years ago. I was in high school. I was 18 years old. I was a senior in high school, and I was a part of a church plant. And we, we met in Crossroads. Any of you familiar with that? East of Bellevue, really international community. We met, the church plant met, in a strip mall and a Kmart uh, parking lot. And across the street, there was subsidized housing apartment complex. And we had an idea as you know, a church plant and a new youth ministry to go, oh, one detail, right next door to our church. Again, it's a strip mall, right? You got like the shoe leather repair, you got a nail salon, you like, this is the type of place where we got a tanning place. But right next door to us, we've got a Little Caesars pizza. So our church always smelled like Little, Little Caesars pizza. Still can't eat it to this day. Grosses me out. Uh, but at the time, we had this idea that we would go to the apartments across the way and offer students there free dinner on Wednesday night. You, you know, it's the old bait and hook that churches do sometimes, right? Hey, come and have free dinner. And then we'd smack them with the gospel, right? They'd come and they'd be eating pizza. And then we'd start telling them about Jesus. I'm sorry, it's, we've changed our ways. But that's what we did. And we had tons of kids that would come do that. And they'd stick around and they'd tolerate, uh, you know, our gospel presentation. But over time, they'd stick around more and more. And a lot of really cool stuff happened. But there's one story that stands out to my mind that changed my life forever there was a girl named Denise and uh, Denise came from a really broken family. The more she came, the more we learned about her that her parents um, were in and out of jail. They were drug addicts and they were criminals and they were very, very physically abusive to Denise. There was multiple times she would show up with bruises on her arms, uh, black eyes. It was incredibly tragic. And I don't know this for a fact, but based on Denise's behavior, 
I believe she probably at 17 years old was also addicted to drugs because you never quite knew what version of Denise you were going to get. Sometimes she was just peppy and full of life and energetic. And other times she was sad. Other times she was one of the most angry, full of rage people um, I've ever met, which makes sense coming from the environment that she was experiencing. But I think she also was under the influence of drugs or alcohol or something. So it's winter time and our little church plant and our little student ministry is going to have our first ever winter retreat. And we rented some vans and we rented a retreat facility up in Whistler, Canada. And we were going to go up there and have this incredible winter retreat. And we got about 20 students signed up to do this, most of which um, weren't part of our church. And so we were just fired up. We're going to have fun. God's going to do amazing things on our first winter retreat. And so we're in the parking lot. It's like 6.30 in the morning. It's cold. It's raining. It's dark. And we're loading up the vans with all of our stuff. And all of a sudden, I start hearing some commotion. And I look over, and Denise is getting in the face of a couple of the leaders. And she's getting really agitated. And her hands are flailing. And her voice is rising. And all of a sudden, she is yelling and shouting and screaming profanities and just going ballistic on these people. And next thing I know, she turns around, cocks her fist, and hauls off and punches the brick wall of the building full force, full force. And in an instant, she crumbles to the ground. She's clutching her hand. Blood is everywhere. I was the first one there, grabbed her, looked at her hand. I could see the whites of her knuckles. I could see the bones. The skin was ripped. Her bones were broken. Blood was everywhere. And my pastor immediately came up. There was uh, one of the chaperones was a nurse. And so she came up and the nurse and my pastor said, Garrett, will you keep helping everyone get the van loaded up? We're going to take Denise in and do some triage and we're going to call the ambulance. So, okay. So I'm trying to calm everyone down. Don't worry. You know, Pastor Jude's got it. They'll figure it out. And I'm loading up um, the vans. And so we got loaded up and we're sitting around and about, Seven minutes had passed, and my pastor opens up the door of the church, kind of just a little bit, and pokes his head out and says, Garrett, get in here. You've got to see this. Like, oh, my gosh, what the heck is going on? And so I say, hey, guys, I'll be right back. Just hang tight. And I go in, and I open the door to my pastor's office, and here Denise sits with her back to me, kind of clutched down, her arms folded together between her legs, shivering, trembling. And I walk around the side and I look at her and I said, Denise, are you okay? And she barely just kind of looks up at me and she's like, yeah, I'm okay. And my pastor's full of excitement and energy. He says, Denise, show Garrett your hand. And she slowly just kind of lifts her arms up from between her legs and holds her arm out and her, her, the sleeve of her sweatshirt was over her hand. She goes like this and she slowly starts to let her hand be revealed from the sleeve of her sweatshirt. And as her hand comes out, I see a perfectly formed hand. The skin is completely healed. There is no blood. There are no scabs. There are no scrapes. There are no marks. A perfectly healthy hand. And he said, Jude says, Denise, shake Garrett's hand. So she sticks it out, and I'm scared to death, right? I'm like, I don't want to ruin the miracle. And so, like, I, I touch her hand like a dead fish, you know? I'm kind of like, like this, you know, like pastor's wife handshake, just like barely cup it. And, and you know you've had that handshake when you walk out. And, 
And he says, Garrett, squeeze Denise's hand. And so I feel Denise squeeze my hand and I squeeze hers back and I look her in the eyes. I said, does it hurt? She's like, Garrett, it's a miracle. Jude was praying for me and all of a sudden we looked down and it looked like this. I just hear that over and over and over. Garrett, it's a miracle. Jude was praying and I looked down and it looked like this. I'll tell you what, we got in those vans, we drove to Whistler and God did something amazing that weekend. I experienced the Holy Spirit, not just right there in that moment with Denise, but the 20 of us that went on that retreat, it changed our lives forever. I will never forget that. And there's times in my life where I feel a spiritual dry spell. Sometimes I wonder, God, are you there? Are you real? Are you listening? How come you're not answering my prayer? But there's times in my life like that that I just can't shake where undoubtedly I saw the miraculous hand. There's no explanation other than Jesus for how that hand reformed itself. It's powerful. The prayer and the faith of my pastor and that nurse had a gigantic impact on Denise's life. And so this morning, as we close, we did this last week. For some of you, it'll be really uncomfortable, really awkward, but I believe it can be really, really powerful too when we step out of our comfort zones and we come forward, sometimes just an act of actually doing something, physically doing something, come forward and pray. So obviously there's a whole lot of candles in front of me here. And in the moment, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you to come forward and to light a candle as a symbolic gesture of sending a prayer up to heaven for someone you know, someone in your life that could use a miracle, that could use the powerful, tangible hand of Jesus in their life. And as you come and you do that, obviously there's some space constraints, so I would encourage you, light a candle and then find some space on the sides here to kneel and spend some time just soaking in prayer. The band's gonna come up and they're gonna lead us through a couple more songs. And I want us to just, as a church, spend some time in worship and in prayer, inviting God into our presence and acknowledging all of this stuff we do is to point to a person, to a relationship, the man behind the miracles, and his name is Jesus. Will you bow your heads and pray with me?